Chapter Twelve of Hester: A Story of Contemporary Life by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto. Chapter Twelve: An Indignant Spectator. Hester Vernon had been, during the most important years of her existence, a sort of outlaw from life. She had been unacquainted altogether with its course and natural order out of all its usual habits, separated from every social way of thinking or discipline of mind. She belonged to a little community which thought a great deal of itself, yet had no foundation for so doing. But strangely enough, though she saw through the fallacy of its general pretensions, she yet kept its tradition in her own person and held her head above the ordinary world, in unconscious imitation of the neighbours, whom she knew to have no right to do so. She kept the spirit of the Vernons, though she scorned them, and thought them a miserable collection of ungrateful dependents and genteel beggars, less honourable than the real beggars, who said thank you, at least. And she had no way of correcting the unfortunate estimate of the world she had formed from this group, except through the means of Catherine Vernon. And the society in her house, of which, at long intervals, and on a doubtful footing which set all her pride in arms and brought out every resentful faculty, she and her mother formed a part. If the Vernon Ridgeways and Mr. Mowmay Vernon were bitterly critical of Catherine, missing no opportunity to snarl at the hand that fed them, Catherine, on her part, was so entirely undeceived in respect to them, and treated them with such a cynical indulgence and smiling contempt, as if nothing save ingratitude and malice were to be expected from humanity, that Hester had found no relief on that side from her painful thoughts. She was so conscious in her own person of meanings more high, and impulses more noble, that the scorn with which she contemplated the people about her was almost inevitable, and when, deeply against her will, and always with an uneasy consciousness that her mother's pleasure in the invitations an excitement about going was childish and undignified, Hester found herself in a corner of the Grange drawing-room. Her pride, her scornful indignation, and high contempt of society grew and increased. Her poor little mother, standing patiently smiling at all who would smile at her, pleased with the little recognition given her as one of the poor ladies at the Vernonry, and quite content to remain there for hours for the sake of two minutes banal conversation now and then, to be overlooked at supper and taken compassion upon by a disengaged curate, or picked up by some man who had already brought back a more important guest, made Hester furious and miserable by her complacency. Hester herself was one of some half-dozen girls in white muslin, who kept a wistful eye upon the curate in the hope of being taken down to the supper-room downstairs, from which a sound of talk and laughter came up to the forlorn ones left above. But no curate, however urgent, ever persuaded Hester to go down, to stand at the tail of the company and consume the good things on Catherine's table. She saw it all from that point of view which takes the glitter off the brightest surface." Why did those poor girls in white muslin, not being compelled, like Hester, continue to go? There were two sisters who would chatter together, pretending to be very merry, and point out to each other the pictures, or some new piece of furniture, and say that Miss Vernon had such taste. They were always of the number of those who were forgotten at supper, 
who were sent down after the others came upstairs with careless little apologies. Why did they come? But Hester was not of a temper to chatter, or to look at pictures, or to make the best of the occasion. She stood in the corner behind her mother, and made it quite clear that she was not enjoying herself. She took no interest in the pieces that were performed on the piano, or the songs that were sung, and even rejected the overtures of her companions in misfortune to point out to her the very interesting photographs which covered one table. Some of the elder ladies who talked to her mother made matters worse by compassionately remarking that the poor girl was evidently terribly shy. But otherwise nobody took any notice of Hester. The other people met each other at other houses, had some part in the other amusements which were going on, and knew what to say to each other. But Hester did not know what to say. Edward Vernon, her early acquaintance, whom she would still often meet in the morning, and between whom and Hester there existed a sort of half-and-half -half alliance, unlike her relations with anyone else, took no open notice of her, but would sometimes cast a glance at her as he passed, confidential and secret. "'How are you getting on?' he would say, and when Hester answered, "'Not at all,' would shrug his shoulders and elevate his eyebrows and say, "'Nor I,' under his breath. But if he did not get on, his manner of non-enjoyment was at least very different from Hester's. He was, as it were, Catherine Vernon's son and representative. He was the temporary master of the house. Everybody smiled upon him, deferred to him, consulted his wishes. Thus, even Edward, though she regarded him with different eyes from the others, helped to give a greater certainty to Hester's opinion on the subject of society. Even he was false here pretending to dislike what he had no reason to dislike, and what was perhaps worse, leaving her to stand there neglected, whom he was willing enough to talk with when he found her alone. Hester felt, with her head raised, her nostrils expanded, a quiver of high indignation in her lip, that she herself would never suffer anyone to stand thus neglected in any room of hers. Those women in their diamonds who swept downstairs while her mother stood and looked on wistfully should not be the first in her house. She would not laugh and say, One of the Vernonry, as Catherine permitted herself to do. It seemed to Hester that the poor and the small would be the first whom she would think of, and amuse, and make happy. They should have the best of everything, they who had not the best of anything in life. Society, she thought, always in that corner where there was full time to make theories, and the keen prick of present humiliation to give animation to them, should be a fine compensation to those who were not so happy as the others. A true hostess should lay herself out to make up for them, for that one genial moment, for the absence of beauty and brightness in their lives. It should be all for them, the music and the wit and the happy discourse, those who lived in fine houses, who had everything that wealth could give, should stand aside and give place to the less happy. There should be no one neglected. The girl whom no one noticed stood apart and invented her high magnanimous court, where there should be no respect of persons. But it was not wonderful if in this real one she felt herself standing upon a pedestal, and looked out with scorn upon the people who were enjoying themselves, and with a sense of bitter mortification watched her poor little mother curtsying and smiling, pleased to go down to supper after the fine people were satisfied, 
on somebody's benevolent arm who is doing duty for the second time. No, I thank you, Hester said to the curate who stood offering his arm, tossing her head like a young princess. I never go to supper. She was not without a consciousness either that Catherine, hearing this, had been mightily amused by her airs and her indignation, and next time looked out for them as one of the humours of the night. Thus it will be seen that all Hester's small experience of society taught her to despise it. She was outside of the life of families, and knew little or nothing of the ordinary relations of parents and children, and of that self-sustaining life where there are no painful bonds of obligation, no dependence, no forced submission of one set of people to another. She thought the mass was all the same, with such exceptions as old Captain Morgan and his wife rarely appearing, and here and there a visionary, indignant soul such as herself, free as yet from all bonds, looking on with a proud consciousness that were but the power in her hands, it should not be so. The great question of love had scarcely flitted at all across her firmament. She had indeed a trembling sense of possibility, such as youth itself could not be youth if it were destitute of, a feeling that sometimes suddenly there might come down upon her path out of the skies, or appear out of the distance someone in whom all the excellences of earth should be realized. But this, it need not be said, was as entirely unlike an ideal preference for dark eyes and mustaches, as it was unlike the orthodox satisfaction in a good match which her mother had so abruptly revealed. It was like the dawn upon the horizon, where as yet there is no sun and no color, a visionary, tremulous premonition of the possible day. A girl who has this feeling in her heart is not only horrified but angry, when the fact comes down upon her in the shape of a dull man's proposal or a parent's recommendation. It is a wrong to herself and to him and to the new earth and the new heaven which might be coming. Esther left her mother on that memorable morning with the glow of a fiery resentment in her heart. Everything seemed to grow vulgar under that touch, even things which were heavenly. Not a magnanimous hero, but Harry not a revelation out of heaven out of the unknown but a calculation of his good qualities and the comforts he could bestow all this no doubt was very high-flown and absurd but the girl knew no better she felt it an insult to her that her mother should have set such a bargain before her and oh worse than an insult intolerable when poor mrs john in her ignorance invited the confidence of this high visionary maiden on the subject of love. This drove the girl away, incapable of supporting such profanation and blasphemy. She went out upon the common where she could be quite alone, and spent an hour or two by herself beyond reach of anybody, trying to shake off the impression. She had nothing to do to occupy her mind, to force out of it an unpleasant subject. She could only rush out and secure for herself solitude, at least, that she might master it and get it under her feet. But sometimes to appoint a meeting with yourself to discuss such a question ends in another way from that which has been foreseen. Sitting alone under a bush of winds, some chance touch of fancy made Hester think of her mother's aspirations towards the White House, the ormolu set, and the portrait in short sleeves. Thoughts arise sometimes in a curious dramatic order, to all appearance independent of the mind of the thinker, 
as if certain pictures were presented to it by some independent agency outside. In this way there gleamed across the mind of Hester a sudden presentation of her mother in those same short sleeves, her pretty dark hair in two large bows on the top of her head, her feet in white satin shoes with sandals, like an artless beauty out of the keepsake or the forget-me-not. The imagination was so sudden that in the midst of thoughts so different it tempted the girl to a smile. Poor mother, so young and pretty, and silly, perhaps. And then Hester recollected old Mr. Rule's story, how she had rushed to her desk and produced twenty pounds to save the bank from bankruptcy. The girl recollected, with an indignant pang of compassion, that Catherine had produced thousands of pounds and had saved the bank, what virtue was that in her? She had the money, whilst the other had not, and Mrs. John's helpless generosity was just as great. Poor little mother, and the house she was so proud of, her married home, her ideal of everything that was fine and handsome. Hester's imagination after this made a jump, and beheld her mother in the widow's dress of black which she never left off, standing, glad of any crumbs of notice which might fall to her in the corner of the drawing-room, where Catherine the successful reigned supreme. It angered the girl that her mother should be so humble-minded, but yet it was quite characteristic of her. And what a contrast was in those two scenes! Who made her think of this at the very moment when, rushing out to escape from her mother, she had felt the gulf of incomprehension between them more bitterly than ever before? It could not be anything but a kind influence that did it, a good fairy, or even perhaps a friendly angel, grieved at the emancipation of this child from the tenderest bonds of nature. Anyhow, Hester thought, with a sudden moistening of her eyelids, of the pretty creature in the picture, and the widow in the black gown, at the same moment. From white satin to crape, from twenty to fifty, ah, and more than these, from the thoughtless prosperity of a creature who had never known anything different, to the humiliation borne so sweetly of the too submissive, artless soul. Her eyelids moistened, and the sun caught them, and amused himself making tiny rainbows in the long lashes. Esther's heart, too, was caught and touched. Poor petite mère, how much, as she would have said herself, she had gone through. And then something occurred to Hester which made her set her white teeth and clench her hands. If she pleased, she could set that right again, which was so wrong. She could put back her mother in the white house she loved, take down the innocent portrait in white satin, and hang it in the place of honour once more, throw open finer rooms than Catherine's for the reception of, oh, so different a company, society in which no one should be overlooked, and in which Catherine's gentle rival should be supreme. She could do all this if she chose. The thought, suddenly bursting upon her, made her head go round. She could put her mother in the place from which it seemed, wrongly, but yet that was so natural an impression, Catherine had driven her, turn the tables altogether upon Catherine, and make a new centre, a new head, everything new. The girl raised her head with a little shake and toss like a high-bred horse, as this strange and sudden suggestion came into her mind like an arrow. She could do it all! The suggestion that she could do it when it came from her mother had been an insult and wrong. But when it came to her as it did now, though there was horror in it, there was also temptation, the sharp sting of an impulse. 
What was the dreadful drawback? Nothing but Harry. No monster, nothing terrible. A good fellow, a docile mind, one who had never been unkind. Hester had judged him with his sister for a long time, but of late days she had learned to separate Harry from Ellen. He had always been nice, as Mrs. John said, not great, indeed, or noble, but honest and kind in his simple way. Once, at least, Hester remembered, he had, what was nothing less than heroic in the circumstances, stepped forward, broken all the Redboro laws of precedence, and taken down her mother at one of the Grange parties, in entire indifference to the fact that ladies more great were waiting for his arm. This recollection jumped suddenly into her mind as she sat in the solitude thinking it all over. He had always done his best, coming to her, standing by her side, with not much to say, indeed, but with a sort of silent championship, which Hester had laughed at, but which she remembered now. He was not very often present at the Grange parties, but when he was there, this was what he had done. It was no great matter, but in the excited state of her mind it told upon her. Edward came only by moments when the company was otherwise engaged, and then spoke to her rather by signs, by that shrug of the shoulders and elevation of the eyebrows than in words. But Harry had penetrated to her corner and stood by her, making himself rather larger than usual that everybody might see him. The ungrateful girl had laughed and had not been proud of her large-limbed champion, but when she thought of it now her heart melted to him. He had not been afraid of what people would say, and after all, to be able to set everything right, to restore her mother's comfort and exaltation, to be free and rich with no greater drawback than Harry, would that be so difficult to bear? She shivered at the thought, but yet that she did so much as ask herself this question showed how far already her thoughts had gone. After the untoward conversation of this morning, Mrs. John took great pains to keep Harry back. She ventured even to write a note to him, composed in great anxiety, very much underlined and emphatic. I have sounded her and find her mind a complete blank on that subject. She has never thought about it, and she has seen no one, as you remarked. If you will but put off a little, I feel sure it will be followed by the happiest results. Circumstances, as it happened, served Mrs. John's purpose and made it indispensable to put off a little any formal advances, for Harry had to leave Redborough on business for a week or two. His consequent absence from the Vernonry was seen with great satisfaction by the neighbours, who knew no reason for that absence. He has seen his mistake in time, the Miss Vernon Ridgeway said, congratulating each other, as if the destruction of poor Hester's supposed hopes and projects was some gain to them, and Mr. Mildmay Vernon nodded his head over his newspaper, and chuckled and announced that Harry was no fool. They all remarked with much particularity to Mrs. John that her visitor had not long continued his assiduities. "'But we can't expect, you know, that a young man should always be coming out here,' said Miss Matilda. "'What was there to gain by it? And that is the rule nowadays. Besides, dear Catherine does not like these nephews of hers, as she calls them, no more nephews than I am, to see too much of us. They might hear things which she wouldn't wish them to hear.' Mr. Mildmay's remark was jaunty like himself. "'So Harry has given you up, young dog. It's what they all do, you know.' 
He laughs and he rides away. I was no better myself, I suppose. Mrs. John could have cried with humiliation and pain. She explained that Mr. Harry was absent, that he had told her he was going away. But these kind people laughed in her face. Perhaps this, too, had a certain effect upon Hester's mind. She heard the laugh, though her mother did all she could to keep her from hearing, and an impulse to show them her power, to prove once more for all that she could have everything they prized, the money and the finery and the position, which they all envied and sneered at, when she pleased. An impulse less noble, but also keener than the previous one, came suddenly into her mind. When Harry came back, however, Hester quailed at the thought of the possibility which she had not rejected. She saw him coming and stole out the other way, round the pond and under the pine trees, so as to be able to reach the house of the Morgans without being seen. And when Harry appeared, he had to run the gauntlet of the three bitter spectators, the chorus of the little drama, without seeing its heroine. "'Dear Harry, back again,' the Miss Vernon Ridgeways cried. "'How nice of you to come again. We made up our minds you had given us up. It was so natural that you should tire of us, a set of shabby people. And dear Catherine is so fond of you. She likes to keep you to herself.' "'I don't know that she's so fond of me. I've been in town on business,' Harry said, eager to escape from them. Mr. Mildmay patted him on the shoulder with his newspaper. "'Keep your free will, my boy,' he said. "'Don't give in to habits. Come when you please, and go when you please. That's a man's rule.' Harry looked at this feeble Mephistopheles as if he would have liked to kick him, but of course he did not, because he was feeble and old, and a cad, as the young man said in his heart, and so went in by the veranda door to see Hester, and found her not, which was hard after what he had gone through. Mrs. John pinned him down for a talk which she was nervously anxious for, and which he, after the first moment, liked well enough, too, and perhaps it was as well, he consented to think, that he should see how the land lay. Meanwhile, Hester, very cautiously, had crept into the house of the old people next door. The two houses were divided only by a partition, yet how different the atmosphere was. The keen inquisitions of the Vernonry, its hungry impatience to know and see everything, its satirical comments, its inventions of evil motives, were all unknown here, and even her mother's anxieties for her own advancement put a weary element into life which in the peaceful parlour of the old captain and his wife existed no more than any other agitation. The old lady, seated in the window, putting down her book, well pleased when the visitor came in, was an embodiment of tranquillity. She had lived no easy life. She had known many troubles and sorrows, laboured hard and suffered much, but all that was over. Her busy hands were still, her heart at rest. Hester did not know sometimes what this great tranquillity meant, whether it was the mere quiet of age, almost mechanical, a blank of feeling, or if it was the calm after great storms, the power of religious consolation and faith. It filled her sometimes with a little awe, sometimes with a sort of horror, to think that she, with all the blood dancing in her veins, should ever come to be like that. And yet even in her small round she had seen enough to be sure that these old people had a kind of happiness in their quiet, which few knew. Mrs. Morgan took off her spectacles and closed them within the book she had been reading, well pleased when Hester appeared. The captain had gone out. She was alone, and perhaps she did not care very much for her book. 
At all events, Hester was her favorite, and the sight of the girl's bright looks and her youth, her big eyes always full of wonder, her hair that was scarcely keep straight, the something springy in her gait, pleased the old lady and did her good. "'May I stay and talk to you?' Hester said. "'You shall, dear, certainly, if you think it right. But I see everything from my window, and Harry Vernon has just gone in to see your mother. Do you know?' "'I saw him coming,' Hester said, with a cloud upon her face, which looked like displeasure, but was indeed the trouble of her self-discussion and doubt as to what she should do. "'Something is wrong,' said the old lady, "'and you have come to tell me. Are you going to marry Harry Vernon, Hester?' "'Would that be something wrong?' cried the girl, looking up quickly with a certain irritation. She did not mean to have so important a question forejudged in this easy way.' "'That is according as you feel, my dear, but I fear he is not good enough for you,' Catherine says. Now the Morgans were altogether of Catherine's faction, being her relations, and not, as the other members of the community remembered with much resentment, Vernon's at all. It was a sinful use of the family property as concentrated in Catherine's hand to support these old people who had no right to it, more or less, this was the sentiment of the community generally, even, it is to be feared, of Mrs. John herself. And consequently, as an almost infallible result, they were on Catherine's side and took her opinions. Esther stopped the mouth of the old lady, so to speak, hastily holding up her hand. "'That is a mistake,' she cried. "'Catherine is quite wrong. She does not like him, but he is honest as the skies. He is good.' You must not think badly of him because Catherine has a prejudice against him. That is a rash thing for you to say. Catherine is a great deal older and a great deal wiser than you. She may be older and she may be wiser, but she does not know everything, said Hester. There is one prejudice of hers you don't share. She thinks the same of me. This staggered the old lady. It is true. She does not understand you somehow. Things seem to go the wrong way between times. Am I difficult to understand? cried Hester. I am only nineteen, and Catherine is sixty. You are not quite so easy as A, B, C, said Mrs. Morgan with a smile. Still, I acknowledge that it is one thing against her judgment. But you do not answer my question. Are you going to marry Harry Vernon? Hester, seated in the shelter of the curtain, invisible from outside, hardly visible within, looked out across the common to the place where she had sat and pondered, and breathed a half-articulate, No. Then, Hester, you should tell him so, said the old lady. You should not keep him hanging on. Show a little respect, my dear, to the man who has shown so much respect to you. Do you call that respect, said Hester, and then she added, lowering her voice, My mother wishes it. She thinks it would make her quite happy. She says that she would want nothing more. Ah, said the old lady, that means... It is to be feared that she was going to say something not very respectful to Hester's mother, about whom also Catherine's prejudice told. But she checked herself in time. That gives it another aspect, she said. Do you think it would be right to marry a man only because your mother wished it? asked Hester, fixing her eyes on Mrs. Morgan's face. "'Sometimes,' said the old lady with a smile. "'Sometimes. I thought you were like the captain and believed in love.' 
Sometimes, she said again, it does not do in every case. That is what I object to the captain and you for. You are always so absolute. Love rejects suitableness, and if Catherine is not quite wrong... She is quite wrong, cried Hester again vehemently. She does not know Harry any more than she knows me. He is not clever, but he is true. Then marry him, my dear. Why should I marry him? One does not marry everyone whom Catherine misjudges. Oh, there would be too many, nor even to please mother. I am perhaps as poor a judge as Catherine, Hester. Now you are unjust. Now you are unkind, cried the girl with anger in her eyes. Come, said Mrs. Morgan, you must not assault me. You are so young and so fierce, and my old man is not here to take my part. I cannot ask him because he is a man, said Hester. But I know what he would say. He would not say, sometimes, like you. He would say, never, and that is what I think, too. Because you are so young, my dear, and my old man, bless him, he is very young. But this world is a very strange place. Right and wrong are like black and white. They are distinct and easy. The things that baffle us are those that perhaps are not quite right, but certainly are not wrong. Do you call it not wrong to do what your heart revolts at to please your mother? I call that right in one sense, but I would not use such strong language, Hester, the old lady said. This must be metaphysics, said the girl. Sophistry, isn't it? Casuistry, I don't know what to call it, but I see through you. It would be right to do a great many things to please her, to make my dress her way instead of mine, to stop at home when she wanted me, though I should like to go out, but not, surely not, Mrs. Morgan, to marry the man of her choice, though he is not your own. Hester nodded her head, her face glowing with the sudden blush that went and came in a moment. She was agitated, though she did not wish to show it. The impulse to do it became suffocating, the shiver of repugnance stronger as she felt that the danger was coming near. I am not so sure, said the old lady in her passionless calm. Sometimes such a venture turns out very well. To please your mother is a very good thing in itself, and if you are right about his character, and care for no one else, and can do it, for after all that is the great thing, my dear, if you can do it, it might turn out very well, better than if you took your own way. Is that all that is to be thought of, whether it will turn out well? cried Hester indignantly. You mean if it is successful, but the best way is not always successful. Success in marriage means almost everything, the old lady said. Then there was a pause, separated only by the partition. Harry Vernon was discoursing with Mrs. John on the same subject. He was telling her all he would do for his wife when he got her. The White House should be refurnished, but if she pleased the best of the old things, the ormolu and all that rubbish, Harry said, which gave the poor lady a wound in spite of her great and happy emotion, should be put into the rooms which are to be her rooms for life. But for Hester he would have everything new, and he thought he saw his way to a carriage, for the phaeton, though Ellen was fond of it, was not quite the thing he allowed for a lady. He had got just about that length and was going on a little excited by his own anticipations and filling his future mother-in-law with delight and happiness 
when hester on the other side of the wall suddenly sprang up and cried throwing up her hands but i cannot do it in tones so painful and so clear that it was a wonder why they did not penetrate the wainscoting mrs morgan who had been waiting for a reply folded her old fingers worn with the hard usage of life but now so quiet into each other and said softly that was what i thought end of chapter twelve